This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press about how faith is changing culture in unexpected ways. I'm Nancy Wong Yoon. I'm a sociologist, a pop culture expert, and a professor at Biola University. New eyes that look at the world in new ways. New eyes make contact blue, green, and gray. New eyes I realized I never knew when you realize feelings are trapped inside of you. New eyes to see the respect you And I am here with my good friend, G. So tell me a little bit about who we have on today. Famed TikToker, Nick Cho. <laughs> Your Korean dad. <laughs> yes, he is 3 million followers on TikTok. I don't know, he must be my... My most famous, like in terms of the TikTok generation, <laughs> the most um, guest able to touch the the masses. I know he's he's so great, and and also just FYI, just to show how disruptive I am, <laughs> Nick is not a Christian. Mm. <laughs> he's um, a special guest who is you know who's someone who grew up in the church and yeah. we're going to be talking about you know what that's like how you know how his uh, upbringing has influenced who he is today as well as kind of some of the tough questions about faith i can't wait to listen you know nick i read that you've been making videos since you were 14 on vhs tape what's that oh my goodness (laughs) what kind of of videos were you making this is back when you were the age of some of your followers that's that's right it was back in high school i mean it was a thing that i always liked to do it was a lot of fun i remember i had an uncle that had a vhs video camcorder we called them back then right before most people did and it kind of caught my interest and it was just a lot of fun it was just a fun sort of thing to play with i'm kind of a nerd about technology too And so, you know, going from VHS and trying to, like, figure out how to wire two VHS decks together and actually be able to edit something to then digital video becoming a thing, like, in, you know, the early 90s, you know. And then nowadays, my goodness, like, everyone's carrying around, like, a professional-grade camera, like, in there. It was sort of a natural progression, and it's been a lot of fun. What kind of uh, content were you making back then? Do you remember in high school? I mean, I was doing, a f- some things were just school projects. Some things were just kind of home movies. We made, in 11th grade, for my American history class, I made a, a video with a bunch of friends, you know, for, for school, for the class, for the AP history class. And I, I'm trying to remember all the different things. Like, we assassinated Abraham Lincoln by putting a firecracker in the back of a carrot. Like, we hollowed out a carrot and put a top hat on him, and then we blew it up. That was, like, the assassination. We we had a Civil War battle. It was uh, green grapes against the red grapes, you know, kind of thing. You know, just silly sort of stuff like that. And then um, when when I was a kid, I was, you know, very involved in church youth group. And I actually helped start a tradition at our church for many years where every year the, the senior class would graduate, that they would make a little video um, sort of as like a video yearbook. And at the end of the sort of yearbook part would be like a funny kind of comedic, sometimes adventure, sometimes action movie type sort of like like little skit thing. And that was a lot of fun, just collaborating on that with different people over time, yeah. So this was for uh, seniors in your church? Yeah. <laughs> oh, fun. Wow, you yeah. had a very advanced uh, church group with a video tradition. <laughs> well, that was the thing was that like, 
because I was into it, it sort of enabled that to become a thing. And, you know, it's to me, it's one of those lessons where it really only takes one person sometimes to kind of change a lot. And I, I get messages all the time from some of those kids from those youth group years who are like, I'm so thankful for these videos. Like, I know it was you who kind of made it possible, made it happen through your expertise and your kind of hobby level sort of interest. And yeah, I, I, that's the kind of thing I, I like to remind other people of as well. Like sometimes it just takes one person to really make a big impact. So mentioning church group, you said, and when I asked you to be on the podcast, you said that when you were 19 or 20, you thought you were going to be a pastor. Can you I tell did. me about that? Yeah, you, you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of a funny kind of thing. Like I, I've observed over the years, um, there are these kind of tropes and and narratives that you see happen over and over again and there is sort of like the the cliche slash trope of like someone who was not a very good student especially like in asian american east asian american kind of communities like someone who wasn't a very good student in high school or college who kind of was a little bit aimless in their career and somehow was kind of just hanging around the youth group kids at church just like around and kind of playing a little bit of a of an adult leader young adult leader kind of mm -hmm. role you're nodding your head like you know what i mean like it's a thing and i was that one of those guys for a while like yeah i, I dropped out of college and i was like selling toyotas at a dealership or like working at the video game store and meanwhile like hanging out with youth group kids and uh i was also kind of more musical i was doing a lot of um kind of worship band i played guitar and i sang i actually ended up studying voice for a little bit in college but it was a thing that uh, I, I started thinking about. Is, is this something that I might be called to do? And I actually did an internship at a church. Um, I was kind of brought up United Methodist, Korean United Methodist. And I did an internship one summer. It was all about kind of discerning your call and, and, and working at a church. And at the end of the internship, I realized that it was not my calling. It was actually not for me to be an ordained minister. And at, at that moment, it was actually kind of painful uh, it was a painful process, as sometimes those life-changing things can be. Mm -hmm. But I kind of vowed then that I would continue to support people who are doing both, you know, ministry in in faith communities as well as you know in more secular com communities as well. That I, I would kind of make it my life's work to be able to support them and to do it support from ways you know that that those folks need very often and sometimes don't get. And yeah, that was my kind of story there. People have said that you're like the modern day Mr. Rogers. And I immediately thought, well, Mr. Rogers was, uh, he was, or he was actually an ordained minister, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and he had, a, he had a profound impact on me as a young immigrant. This is before I was a person of faith. And I think he saw his ministry as talking to children, right? Through television. And, um, he said this, he said, I believe that appreciation is a holy thing that when we look for what's best in a person, we happen to be with at the moment, we're doing what God does all the time. So I think about when I see your um, videos that you are appreciating and supporting people right through the screen as well, even though it's not public television, it is the, I guess, TikTok, whether it's people's <laughs> phones or, or computers or whatever they're watching on. So where does that love come from for you? You know, I think that ever since I was a kid, well, first of all, thanks for saying that, you know, Mr. Rogers is like one of my top three heroes of my life. The other th two of the three 
are actually like pastors that I that I grew up with. And so like my top three are pastors, even though I don't really identify as being religious today. Um, mm. I really have, the thing that always drew me to the church community and just that the ministry in general was there's a really service to our, you know, fellow human beings, fellow people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, someone like Mr. Rogers is a great example of someone who indeed like, you know, was dr- driven and led through by his faith, but it wasn't like a big part of his work in an overt way, but mm-hmm. it informed everything. And so for me, I think that, that I've really been focused through most of my adult life on, you know, serving other people and in what way can I be of service? Um, and so, you know, that it, in many ways, it's been a struggle and a personal journey in a way to sort of understand what that means and what it doesn't mean what that means for my own health and well-being and how that relates to the work I'm trying to do. And so um, ultimately, I think that, I, I don't know, I just always kind of grew up, my, my, my parents always said that it was because I was like my grandfather, my father's father, that he just had this kind of innate love for people and wanted to connect in certain ways. And I can relate to that a lot. I think that is in many ways the defining thing about my life. And so starting to make video content, for me, the creative challenge that I gave myself was like through this sort of parasocial one-way kind of stage or, you know, mirror or whatever you want to call it, like this medium, can I connect with people in a meaningful way? And the only way to really do that is to really focus on them and what their needs might be, especially the needs and, and things that aren't being met. And so I started making content along those lines, and I guess that's where everything kind of happened. Well, this is fascinating because you don't know who's out there watching you. Although I guess now with TikTok, there is actually um, a way for people to comment and send you things, right? And you do get response in that way. But when you started, I mean, how do you even know what the needs are out there? The way I started, you know, when I tell this story, it's usually like, I was looking at the way that people engage with the different social media platforms. And I don't even mean like on the software or on the network, but literally like in their lives, like, you know, some people are looking at social media, like on a bus or at work or like at the dinner table when they should be like, you know, eating or or whatever. And I noticed that with the short form video with things like TikTok, that because it's both audio and visual, that people tended to watch it sort of like they're watching, you know, short TV shows. They would watch it alone or with friends, but very often alone, very often in intimate settings, like curled up in bed, you know? And so the creative challenge I gave myself was like, you know, that's such an intimate space, a a sacred space, a very private space. Like what could I possibly offer that would be worthy of being in that space? You know, which I guess you could contrast with others who maybe think a little bit more about like, what's going to go viral or what's going to be, you know, appealing and fun and funny or, or, you know, appeal to people's sort of entertainment value thing. But for me, it was really about the sort of sanctity of that space and how special it is. And, you know, what do I have to offer? And again, sort of drawing from, you know, one of my heroes, Mr. Rogers, seeing that his, you know, point of view was very, you know, he's, he, I think we're at sort of similar age, Nancy, like, Back in the day, nowadays people think of him and they think of him very fondly. Back in the day in the 70s, 80s, like he was kind of a big nerd. 
Like people <laughs> didn't really take him that seriously most of the time. He was for little kids. In a lot of ways, he was like the Barney of like the eighties. You know, like no one likes Barney except for like if you're like three age like two to four. You know, everyone else kind of hates him and wants to punch Barney or something. Right? There, there are jokes <laughs> about that. And Mister Rogers, like you know Eddie Murphy's whole um, Mister Robinson's neighborhood character on SNL was mm-hmm. meant to mock Mister Rogers. It was not a tribute. It was meant to sort of make fun of him because he was so ridiculous. This like skinny white dude, you know, trying to be all sweet and nice. But for me, through it all, I saw this singular focus, this devotion to the well-being of children. Whether or not he was cool, he didn't care. Like, that was the only thing he cared about. Um, He came out really strongly against, for instance, like guns, like toy guns and like military toys. You know, I was at an age where I was like, but I I like my toy guns. Like, why are Mm -hmm. you trying to, you know, take away my toy guns kind of thing? But, you know, in hindsight, I really respect and and admire his sort of singular focus in that way and so that's where I started kind of creating rules for myself and sort of standards for myself and guidelines of the kind of content I would make and not make the ways that I would speak and and not speak and the ways that I would try to prioritize ultimately like marginalized folks and of all different you know kinds you know there's marginalization within marginalization right they're the marginalized Mm -hmm. folks that everyone's kind of it's almost trendy to talk about and to address these days and there are other marginalized folks who don't ever get a voice and so when you mentioned for instance the transracial adoptee video that i made the feedback i got from that community was we've never seen anyone who's not one of us speak in this way that shows awareness and and empathy and sympathy and understanding like so much and you know, that's one of those moments where for me, it is validating. It's like, oh, I'm doing something right. And then immediately after that, it's like, you know, what other groups need that sort of attention could really use, you know, that sort of sort of thing. And, and yeah, I mean, I feel like this is going to be my life's work for the rest of my life. Oh, I love it. I mean, it's such, it must be such fulfilling work because I see like one of your most popular videos with 1.8 views is just simply you saying, I was really so sad. I went to Starbucks to try a caramel cloud macchiato. Is that how you even say it? I don't know those Starbucks drinks um, to help me feel better. So that was the, the, the overlay, right? And then, and then we just see you literally just drinking one and you have tears in your eyes and then you say, I feel the same, meaning it did not make you feel any better, right? But it's just you drinking, tears in your eyes, saying, I feel the same. And that's it. And it was like 1.8 million views. And it made me think about, as a sociologist, like analyzing, wow, that really struck a chord with people, right? Because it was so authentic. It was so real. It was not this like, oh, Starbucks, you know, fancy drink made me feel better. (laughs) It wasn't that. Right. Yeah. You know, it... it, it... Sometimes I think about our culture and our sort of general discourse, like everything that we talk about out there and that is being discussed. You know, it's like this big, giant, it's almost like a map, I guess, or like some kind of big just, you know, field or, or something like that. And, you know, little by little, we'll uncover certain things, you know, and reveal certain certain sentiments or feelings or whatever. And I've always been someone who's more interested in that unexplored stuff and the things Mm -hmm. that, you know, not as like a plot twist kind of, you know, plot device kind of thing, but really speaking to like, yeah, what, what's being overlooked, what's being ignored, what's being missed. And I, I feel like in so many ways, 
you know, our culture, like we're so interested in, you know, how are we going to get to Mars? How are we going to get rid of like, you know, how are we going to have electric cars? Like how are we going to have move all of our life to the metaverse? You know, there's all these conversations of that kind of progress. And for me, it's like, there's so much work that we're jumping over. There's like, you know, it's like, you know, being a kid and, or SATs or some kind of test where it's like, you can skip stuff, but then you got to go back and fill those in later. You got to take that time. And I know that for myself, I've been thinking about that a lot, that like, it really is, there's so much work that is, that in many ways fulfills the function of progress, but is somewhat paradoxically involves going back and filling in certain things that were missed by our discourse, by history, by our society. And in many ways, it represents healing and making things whole. And only in a lot of ways, like only then can we actually move forward and call things true progress. Otherwise, we're just like zipping ahead, like kind of sort of mindlessly and not really um, taking the time to do what we need to do. Your Korean Dad is such an amazing TikTok channel that reaches out to people everywhere, especially those who need the love of a compassionate father figure. Honestly, I can see why Nick Cho is so popular. I would have loved to have someone as affirming and kind as your Korean Dad growing up. As a parent myself, I know how important it is to find books for my children that reflect and celebrate diverse voices, while also equipping them to embody the compassion and love of Jesus. Intermarcity's Press's new line, IVP Kids, does just that. IVB Kids is a line of children's books that packs big biblical values into kid-sized pages. The line includes books such as The Celebration Place by Dorena Williamson, which talks about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s message of God's vision for justice and unity. Isaiah and the Worry Pack by Ruth Goring, a story that helps children learn to trust Jesus with their worries. And forthcoming books such as Josie Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit by Esau Macaulay, a beautiful message about God's creativity and celebrating the way God has uniquely made us. You can learn more by visiting ivpkids.com. And as always, as a listener of the Disruptors podcast, you can purchase any book and get 30% off, plus free U.S. shipping when you use the promo code DISRUPT. It's never been easier to gift a child in your life a book. Visit ivpkids.com. I feel like just thinking about your videos, I mean, the, what you're saying seems so sophisticated. <laughs> and like, like, like you said, they, they have kind of thought out kind mm -hmm. of the trajectory and the boundaries and the roles. And I just see as someone who's, you know, a, an audience member, I see you almost like exploding um, boundaries or rules that influencer culture has dictated, right? Like the typical mm -hmm. influencer would have gone to the coffee shop and just show the beautiful new drink and looked really cool drinking it right but you're like i am sad <laughs> and it has nothing to do with this drink and nothing and nothing about this drink is actually you know making my life any better it's a very kind of subtle critique and then at the same time you know your most popular video <laughs> is you going to eat or going to buy and then consume 30 dollar grapes right yeah so some of the videos are a little bit more planned. Some of them are kind of just uh, inspired by something that's happening in real time. And then I'll just ask someone who's with me, like, can you hold the camera and just point it at me? And I'm going to kind of talk at it. And so sure enough, we were at the Korean grocery store close to where I live. And I happened to notice that in the produce section, there were these like exotic sort of special grapes 
that were from from Korea, like flown in from Korea, that were thirty dollars for like a package. Like it was like one big bunch, like kind of this, generally like the size of like a big maybe foot long so- submarine sandwich kind of thing. And um, and so I looked at it and I said, this would be make good. This would make good content. So I bought it and took it home and turned the camera on and kind of tasted it and you know talked about what it tasted like in real time. But, you know, that one was a lot of fun. People got a kick out of, like, for instance, you know, I kind of point at them and go, do you want, should I eat this one? Should I eat this one? And, you know, <laughs> inevitably, some of the people actually, like, would, like, kind of pick one in their mind. And then I would, that's the one I ate. And uh, and that's its own kind of, like, funny kind of engagement kind of thing, too. But, um, yeah, there there's a sort of a technique or certain kind of, like, you know, ways about, making short form video that's different from other kinds of video. And it's something that I think that, that I took to pretty quickly, like identifying kind of how to, how to use that sort of the gimmicks and sort of tricks, so to speak, like of, you know, grabbing people's attention in the first couple seconds and things like that and driving, you know, behavior so that people want to watch it to the end. But like so many things in life, it's like, there's a little bit of power there. Can I use this for good? Or does it have to be just for sort of like a slapstick humor or something? I want to be cautious to, you know, and just add right now that like, I like to be very inclusive and speak positively about other influencers and content creators. I do feel like in a, a lot of times people look at my content and they go, oh, this is exactly the great antidote to like a lot of the the kind of trashy stuff that's on the internet right now. And, you know... I don't think of it that way. And I think it's unhealthy to think of it that way. Um, I understand why people talk about it that way. But I do think that, you know, when I, as I've gotten to know more and more content creators and just people in general, it's, you know, every, every influencer, every YouTuber, every TikTok, you know, content creator is a flesh and bone person who has feelings and is trying to themselves navigate the culture of TikTok or YouTube or whatever. And so a lot of the content that's being created is, they're sharing in the community. They're sharing in the language of these platforms. And so when people, you know, kind of make fun of them or roll their eyes or whatever, especially when so many of them, like, you know, tend to be, again, pe- people like w- women or, or you know, marginalized people in some way, that it, it does sort of perpetuate kind of a negativity that I, I hope that people reconsider. Um, yeah, like you can enjoy my content and not, have to like poo poo everything else <laughs> oh totally i was actually thinking of myself <laughs> oh, yeah. i was thinking when i post like <laughs> pictures of the new ube drink or something like i i was it's i great. was almost thinking i was yeah no i wasn't like trying to say that what you're doing is an antidote to trashiness because it is actually the majority of influencers is trying to share something cool that they did and and actually like if we look at your content in its entirety i mean the whole grape thing is kind of uh you know and kind of interesting thing right although i couldn't help thinking it's more a like, spectacle of a thing yeah for sure <laughs> it's a spectacle yeah. but then it's like Grapes are local to California, too. <laughs> it's just kind of interesting how they can actually sell $40 grapes when we have local grapes, right? And you also, like, eat, like, what is it, $10 oranges or something? And oranges are also, like, local to California. And I yeah. just, it's so fascinating that someone, maybe it has something to do with a nostalgia for Asia, right? Because it's like, 
we're in California. It's like a Korean market or Asian market. And, you know, you, you want to buy this, like, this thing that comes from the home country, even though it's, like, super expensive. I don't know. What do you think about that? It's, it's that, but also, you know, th- there are different kind of subspecies and different kind of mm-hmm. varieties of these fruits and vegetables that are available elsewhere that they don't have in the States, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, American food history is, you know, and the technification of food, you know, through World War II and onward. Like, there's, there's all these reasons why we have access to the things that we do and we don't have access to other things. But in the case of things like the grapes and the oranges, I mean, it is kind of absurd how expensive those are. But my understanding is those are primarily given as gifts. And it's a little mm-hmm. bit of a delicacy. It's a special thing. And to me, it's like, isn't it wonderful to, like value oranges and grapes instead of like always being like you know thinking expensive food has to be like caviar or like a big <laughs> you know steak or something you know something like that yeah totally totally i mean yeah i mean i i've spent a lot of t- a lot of money on food as well and and produce as actually i mean even going to the farmer's market which is so funny because it's like it's pretty expensive but when i was in taiwan like the quote-unquote farmer's market was like the cheap stuff that you buy on the streets um that you know that were fresh but actually the grocery stores were really expensive so now like (laughs) i feel like in the states it's all flipped around but anyway i also wanted to ask you you said that you are no longer religious and Mm. i wanted to ask about that can you tell me a little bit about kind of you say you're no longer religious how did that happen having you know grown up in the church it's you know i'm this is such an interesting topic, and I've never really talked about it, um, you know, in public. But part of the thing for me is, like, I, I'm reluctant to talk about it only because I don't want to inadvertently be any kind of influence on anyone in that way. I don't necessarily want to uh, kind of facilitate people rethinking, you know, their their religious life or faith journey, you know. I know that for myself, it was uh, a lot of it was really realizing that for me, the primary value in faith community was the community part, and that in many ways that the faith was, um, I almost want to call it an excuse to get together, you know, mm-hmm. and to find and to build community in a way that's so meaning, meaningful. And that is about something that's bigger than yourself. And, you know, there just came a point in my life, you know, through some painful experiences and feeling, uh, to be honest, like uh, being abandoned a bit, maybe more than a bit, by the faith community that I had invested so many years into, to that, um, that then it's, it's, to me, felt like realizing, you know, what's really important to me here is the community part, and that's something that I can keep keep doing, keep growing in other ways. And in a lot of ways, my life since then has been really defined by that, by like, can you bring a lot of that energy and a lot of that positive sort of effect in places that isn't focused on, you know, uh, religion or, or, you know, faith? Can it be more Mm -hmm. of a secular kind of thing that's built around people and love for people? And yeah, that's kind of been my story. Yeah, I completely relate. I feel like 
um, churches have been some of the most painful parts of being a Christian because I have also had, I feel like every time I leave a church, it's like, it's like those, the people that I leave behind, it's like they're gone. They like disappear. I have mm. complained about this with other um, Christians that it's like, or maybe, and then I think, is it just me? Is it me? Like, what is wrong with me that, you know, after I leave a church, no one wants to be my friend anymore, you know? And it feels like I've, it's like every time I leave one, I have to mourn, right? I have mm. to mourn it. And, and then to start over again, especially as you get older, it feels like I don't want to do that work, that emotional work and put myself out there and risk, you know, getting hurt again by a community right so yeah i i just um i completely resonate with that yeah i mean in so many ways what what's happened in our world and especially in in the u.s is just the 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 more and more the consumerism like what i call like the super consumeristic sort of like culture to where Mm -hmm. it it has infiltrated places that didn't used to have sort of consumeristic capitalistic kind of like dynamic so you know the whole idea of well this church isn't really meeting my needs anymore it's like oh Mm -hmm. is the customer service not up to your liking is it is it the food is it the coffee is it the you know the way we think about these things ends up being so much about our own needs that used to be the purview of business only but now it's Mm -hmm. just sort of impacted everyone oh like this vaccine thing doesn't really i don't like it so therefore, you know, I'm going to opt out, you know, kind of thing. It's like that that's really been in tension with, you know, collective good and, co- and community in so many ways. And so I, I do feel like sometimes when I look at this country and our culture, that it really the key to healing and a future that we can all you know prosper in is really about community and re revisiting and sort of reestablishing and in many ways just like reinventing what it means to be an American community and you know on a local level all the way to a national level and and I feel like in some ways that church church communities you know in one of many paradoxes that exist for us like they simultaneously help inform that in positive ways and also sort of prevent that from really taking hold in a way that that I think that we overall need to have. Yeah, a lot of the popular churches like in my area or in my experience have been ones that I think meet a consumer need. But Mm. then I'm always like, oh my gosh, look how much money they spent on that new building or that new parking lot. And I'm like, they should spend that on, you know, something else. Like, you know, so I'm always suspicious of these kind of mega church cultures. But those are the ones that I think, um, you know, have the best music, have the best Sunday school programs. And a lot of times that is what people are looking for when they're looking for a church. For me, um, yeah, it's for me, I want, you know, I want a church that has that cares about social justice, that is aware of, um, you know, like you said, marginalized communities, the the problems uh, in the United States and actually wants to reach out to those communities. And a lot of times it's hard for me to find churches that really do that well. And um, and but it doesn't. But for me, it's not for me. It's uh, beyond just kind of the community, but it's a personal faith as well. And I think that I, I go I return to that part of um, my faith, like my yeah. personal relationship. 
because people just make me so mad. <laughs> and, and people and my I myself am imperfect, you know, and, and and probably not meeting other people's needs as well. And like you said, you know, there's that kind of like, what what do I want out of a church? And what do I want out of a faith? So many times lately, the thing that comes up for me in conversation and, and you know, thematically in so much of my life, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot, you know, over the past few months and a couple years is, you know, there are people who, most people I feel like, and the way that our, our American culture, and I'm going to say specifically like American kind of collective culture is really oriented toward like, are you, you know, thumbs up? Or are you thumbs down? Are you good or are you bad? Are you with us? or Are you against us? Are you, you know, pro this or anti that, you know, kind of thing. And other, so there are other cultures in the world. And I think that in many ways, there's so much to learn from a perspective of embracing paradox. You know, it's not black, it's not white, it's not even shades of gray. It's like the whole thing. All the things are true in different ways. And that's anytime you're talking about anything that involves more than like, you know, more than a very simple kind of mathematical arithmetic sort of like issue, it very often is that. Like there's, there are many things that are true at the same time. And so, you know, with, with church communities, it, it very often it seems like that consumeristic sort of uh, dynamic creates a situation where it's like, well, do you want to be comfortable or uncomfortable? You know, we're people who want to be like comfortable and we want to feel good, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, the answer, at least the way I see it, is like you have to learn to embrace both. Being comfortable in your discomfort and uncomfortable in your comfort. And that in what you're describing, Nancy, in so many ways about like what sounds like more your your, your more idealized kind of faith community is one that comes together united by your desire to find that discomfort where it's appropriate and instead of running from it to actually embrace it and find comfort in each other but only so much as it helps you keep doing the the uncomfortable work like in the rest of the world and serving other people you know that's kind of where i again like i how i see these things and how i see a lot of what i need to do as well you know that's kind of where Ultimately, it becomes about individual calling and how people feel about what they're what they're called to do and be. Yeah, and you came into this calling later in life, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm still. I feel like I'm kind of doing that calling, but I feel like like there's more work for me to do, right? And it's like how, you know, for for our listeners who you know, there's so many people during COVID. I think are rethinking their lives, rethinking what they want to do. I think about actually the the Korean vegan. Um, I, I don't know her. Jo- yeah, she's she's amazing too, right? So she's an attorney and then decided during quarantine to start making these videos. And I just admire both of you thinking like, what? how can I like find my calling <laughs> in the same way? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I appreciate that. And, and to be any kind of inspiration for anyone is, is such a, an amazing honor. At the same time, you know, it also sets up its own kind of uh, potential problem, which is like, if I don't do a sharp 90 degree turn in my career and in my vocation, then, you know, I'm not doing, you know, enough, you know, kind of, kind of thing. And that's not true. You know, that's not true at all. I think that it really is about like looking at yourself and 
you know, as we exist in this, in this world and in this life, it's like, yeah, in what ways can we make, you know, it's cliche, but it's true, like make this world a better place. And in the past couple decades, the main answer that you see in our culture about uh, make this world a better place is, well, I'm going to buy a hybrid instead of, you know, the, ga- <laughs> the gas gas car, or I'm going to drink oat milk instead of, you know, the cow's milk, you know, kind of, kind of thing. I drink, drink fair trade coffee instead of the one from the, you know, grocery store or whatever. It, it's this thing that makes you feel like you did something, but ultimately it doesn't actually challenge you in the right kind of ways. It's not about what you buy, like your purchasing power and your consumerism. Those things are, they have impact and collective impact, but that's not about your identity. Your consumption identity is not who you are. That's just what you bought. Mm-hmm. So in what ways can you look at yourself in the mirror, you know, figuratively and literally, and it's not about reinventing yourself. It's about like, what am I here to do? Joanne, Korean vegan Joanne is a good friend of mine. And, you know, we had some conversations last year when to be, you know, I think she'll be okay with me sharing this. You know, when she was experiencing a little bit of a rut, like creatively, she was kind of stuck. And, you know, in that moment, I just told her and encouraged her and said, you know, people want to see you. People like they love your voice. They love the videos you're making. But ultimately, you know, don't be afraid to put yourself out there and offer yourself up as a like this public figure as a personality for people to kind of become attached to and get to know. And that was a big breakthrough for her. And, uh, you know, her book deal was already in the works, but I think it really helped, you know, shift her content a bit all the way into when her book came out that um, feeling like in a lot of ways, me encouraging her and other people encouraging her kind of let her give herself permission to put herself out there in a way that she didn't feel like she was really allowed to before that. And so mm-hmm. I think that's where the inspiration maybe should come from. Not like, how do I have a best-selling cookbook? You know, how do I re- how do I totally change my job? But in what ways are we being afraid to offer ourselves up to other people? And, you know, it's a thing that my friends and I talk about all the time that like we think we're being humble. And we think we're being um, kind of gracious in that way. It's also kind of selfish. It's selfish to withhold yourself and some of the good that, you know, work that you could offer up by basically using the excuse of I'm shy or, you know, something like that. Those are all things you can work on. But, you know, that light that you have that's inside that the world needs to see, like the world needs to see it. And, it's it's only you can bring that out. Only you can let that, you know, you, only you can take the bushel off and actually <laughs> let it shine. That's powers in you, um, but most people anyway. And so if it is if it is something that you can do, you know, I want to encourage you if you're listening to to let that happen. And for each person, taking that, that basket off and letting that light shine means something different. At the end of um, each podcast, I ask the guests to share something that they've been reading or listening or watching that's been disruptive in a good way in their lives. Is there something that you have come across that's been inspiring you to continue to be, you know, to do the work that you feel like you are called to do? Hmm. 
you know, without being specific, like a, a thing to recommend, I've been really spending more time being mindful of the sort of energy that is around me. So my normal sort of morning was I would wake up, I would uh, turn on a podcast, like usually like NPR or the New York Times daily podcast, like a news thing, or I would go to the living room and turn the TV on in either MSNBC or, or, or CNN. And someone who I've gotten to know recently basically chastised me and said, like, you can't do that. That's not the right way to start the day. And I was like, what do you mean? I want to know what's going on in the world. They said there's mm-hmm. too much sad, sadness and too much sort of negative energy that's coming through these stories, these things that are happening. Let those come to you later in the day. Optimize your, the beginning part of your day with something that's really going to be uplifting and that's going to help you feel good and ultimately set you up for what comes next through the rest of the day and kind of push the hard stuff to later on. And to me, it was like, especially being Korean American, I'm like, what? Like, that's, not, you know, I can't do that. I can't like, that seems so, so uh, indulgent, like self-indulgent. But I tried it. Like, that's sort of one of my personal things. Well, I'll try it. I don't know if I'm going to like it, but I'll at least give it a try. And it really made a difference. It's really made a mm-hmm. difference. I think that it's less about like the, the more uplifting music and that I'm listening to. It's less about the effect of that it's the reminder to myself of what I need to do or not do. It's that kind of, you know, people sometimes call it self-care, right? Like being mindful and intentional in that way. It's almost like in this, this sort of subconscious way, the, the most important part of that is that I'm taking time to care for myself and that therefore I feel, my, I feel loved by me, you know? It's like, you know, basically like I'm spending each day going like, Nick, you're worth taking a little extra time and, kind of curating the stuff that it comes into you. Like, you know, you're not just going to mind mindlessly turn the TV on and to whatever thing that, you know, NPR, whatever thing is on, you know, just that bit of care for myself has actually made a big difference. And it's something that I would encourage other folks to try as well. Oh, that was so interesting to just see more about your Korean dad's inner life you know like we see a certain aspect of him on tiktok and youtube but i love this interview because i feel like nancy you have kind of you know peeled back some of the layers what did you think talking to this influencer of influencers i think it's so inspirational to have nick as an influencer because i think that as a sociologist who studied you know representation it's Mm -hmm. always been thought of that influencers are are young like maybe in their ah. teens to 20s and then they kind of age TikTok out. And TikTok is young. TikTok is very young. And so for someone who's my generation to be an influencer on TikTok, mm. it's and you know he's he's Asian American, it, it's very inspirational and very kind of like showing that there's a lot of space in the social media world for lots of different voices and mm-hmm. and I think that just because someone who is of an older generation doesn't mean that you know those voices are not valued by young mm-hmm. people. And even some of his influencer kind of philosophy or mission, so to speak, is kind of influenced or rooted in kind of his growing up in a faith community, it seems. Yeah, I think that, I mean, when I uh, first came across him and and immediately thought of Mr. Rogers as well as many other people, I did think, wow, this is like a ministry, right? This is, he Mm -hmm. is... um, 
spreading love and acceptance and, um, and just speaking to all sorts of people who maybe didn't grow up with a dad or grew up with a dysfunctional dad and also yeah. teaching people about Korean culture in authentic ways, um, centering Korean culture, right, in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. For example, like one of the videos, I, I didn't talk to him about it, but he, or a, a lot of the, his videos, he does the, the Korean finger heart and yeah. he didn't explain it. And, and then people start asking, what is that? And then he explained it after that, right? So he does a lot of um, Korean-centered stuff that he doesn't explain necessarily because he's centering that, right? Rather yeah. than kind of his, his idea isn't like, okay, I need to teach non-Koreans about Korean culture. He's just being himself. And I think that's, mm -hmm. that's the appeal of, of his channel, his persona, is that he's very authentically himself. And he was able to speak authentically in this episode, um, even though I think he was a little bit hesitant, you know, because he doesn't yeah. want to influence. And he's, he's very aware of his um, influence, literally, yeah. right? Yeah. And so he was very careful about it, but he was willing to talk about, yeah, that why why he stepped away from faith. Yeah, like, especially it sounds like he really invested a lot of himself into those communities and then to feel kind of betrayed. Yeah, I completely empathize because mm -hmm. uh, I, I know that, like, church is supposed to be, you know, for the broken, but sometimes being around broken people when you're broken yourself, it's like, yeah. where's the healing coming from? You know, yeah. there needs to be good yeah. leadership. There needs to be somebody, um, you know, who can who can love other people. And I, I do find it very hard to be in community, especially as I get older, to be in community with others. And I, you know, I think that the season... Mm -hmm. Um, this season of me, you know, doing podcasting for the first time, yeah. I came, you know, I was asked and I was, I was actually, I was very hesitant because, because I ha I come from a place of, I think, ambiguity and ambivalence about, you know, faith and culture and mm -hmm. how does it come mm -hmm. together or does it come together? And I thought, okay, the only way I'm going to do a podcast about faith is if I ask people who are out there kind of influencing culture, who are doing yeah. work in the world, um, I wanted to be inspired by them. Like, how do they keep faith, right? How do yeah. they, how do they stay um, grounded and and you know what we heard is uh, you know a lot of people are struggling and a lot of people have come to a lot of wisdoms and and especially I think I was particularly fascinated by people who were able to kind of meld their racial ethnic identities with their faith and, yeah. and I think that you know there's been a lot of conversation I think especially in conservative circles about how we should keep those things separate. But I never experienced that, you know, and I don't mm -hmm. live like that. And to hear so many, you know, great intellectuals like Jean Luen Yang and Min Jin Lee talk about their, their faith and, and ethnic identities. And it's just been so sanctifying for me, I think. And yeah. also kind of I was fearful about, you know, whether people were going to accept me <laughs> as a <laughs> as a podcaster, as a person who, you know, who never who had compartmentalized, I think, some of that in terms of my public public, public persona of talking about Asian American and race and culture, and then kind of my, my, you know, my professor and personal life of, of living out my faith and having to meld those together. I had a lot of mm -hmm. sleepless nights. <laughs> I yeah. was like, I was worried that people weren't going to accept me. And I have to say that I have not had anybody critique and, what? and hate on me. I, haven't had, I get a lot of hate. And it's on the for, internet? <laughs> Yeah, for being anti-racist, I get so much hate. But doing this podcast, I mean, maybe no one's listening. I have no idea. <laughs> so nobody's 
hating on me. But um, I think and people I are listening according to, the, according to the metrics. There's a lot of people listening. So thank you, all of you, for listening and supporting. And it's just been very, um, it's a very edifying experience, much, much more than I expected. And I also even had a God moment of like hearing from Aww. God saying, this is... I, I am, this is meant to be. And so I, oh. I felt a lot of peace after that because I was literally like not sleeping nights. But I yeah. just loved actually the entire experience. I'm so thankful for, mm -hmm. um, you know, to InterVarsity Press for asking me. And it's been, yeah, it's been so, so wonderful. And I'm, I, I'm like, maybe I'll be a podcaster and make more <laughs> money for the rest of my life. <laughs> Your new thing. <laughs> yeah, it'll be my and volunteer I experience. Some colors let me cover pop songs in a bottle, how we battle all the barriers, right? Some drink, some color their hair every night. Some try to stand out, some try to act white. Found music, but I've never been the stereo type. New eyes break old lies. New skin makes new wine. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. The Disruptors is hosted by me, Nancy Wong Yoon. You can follow me at Nancy W-Y-U-E. Our theme song is New Eyes by Jason Chu. Our executive producers are Helen Lee and Andrew Bronson. Produced by Richard Clark, Cray Allred, and Myla Kim. <laughs>